Ashley Brock reading Diane Palmer's book, Lawman, and I forgot to say at the beginning, this isn't one of my favorite books. I bought it because I wanted to know more about the Grier family than when I read it at first, like the very beginning of the book. I don't like Garen at all. <laughs> I don't like him in the middle of the book. I only like him at the end of the book. But anyways, it's chapter six. The funeral was brief and only a few people attended it. Grace wept for her grandmother at the graveside service and then dried her eyes. She had to learn to take care of herself, to live alone and work alone with nobody to talk to. It was going to be a hard existence until she got the hang of it. She was aware and surprised that Garen had showed up just in time for the graveside service. He stood apart, frowning curiously at one of the other people attending the ceremony. After the minister offered his condolences, she got up, turned, and almost plowed right into Barbara. Oh, plowed right into Richard Marquis, standing beside Barbara. Thank you both for coming, she said, smiling. I wasn't expecting you. Barbara hugged her woman. Your family, of course we came. Marquis nodded and smiled. Karen noticed that Marquis made no move to touch Grace or even approach her. Why was he here? How well did the man know his mysterious next-door neighbor? <laughs> he hadn't mentioned Mrs. Collier's funeral to Garen when the task force met. Grace looked toward Garen a little uneasily. He joined a small group with Miss Turner beside him. I didn't know you'd be here, Marquis said, shaking hands. Did you know Mrs. Collier? He and Miss Turner have been kind enough to watch out for me in the past few days, Grace said without looking at Garen. Marquis seemed curious, but he didn't press it. I have to get back to work, he told Grace. Mom wanted to come, and I didn't want her to have to come alone. Worry, work? Barbara tried to the I'll outlive you. See you around, Marquis told Garen. He nodded, including Barbara in the gesture. She smiled secretly at Grace and followed Marquis out of the ceremony. I didn't know you were acquainted with Marquis. Garen remarked as they walked back toward their cars with Miss Turner. Miss Turner had hidden, ridden with, in with Grace, and she went a little ahead of them to wait at the expedition for her. We grew up together, she replied Garen. Sort of, she meant. He was six years older than me. <laughs> he didn't say anything else, but he was curious. Grace went back home and started cleaning out her grandmother's bedroom. It gave her something to do, kept her busy. It was a sad task. In the closet, the old lady had kept some gowns that had belonged to Grace's mother. They were photographs, too, of her parents and both sets of her grandparents. She sat in her grandmother's chair looking through the photo album and crying a little as it grew loud later. Death wasn't exactly an option in life. Everyone had to face it sooner or later, but she wasn't ready. And unpleasant as her grandmother could be, it was lonely without the old lady. She didn't have to go to work the next morning, so she slept late. It was just as well. The nightmare had come back again in the early hours before dawn. She sat up in bed, sobbing wildly. She recalled Garen's strong hands on her shoulders, lifting her the night when she'd been afraid. She felt drawn to him, but she had an irrational fear of men when they got too close. It was a shame that she was in imprisoned in her own memory. He seemed a very decent sort of man, and he had a kind heart. She had a light lunch and spent the afternoon hard at work on her project in the sewing room that her grandmother had once used. She was pleased with her progress and hopeful that it might one day provide a new source of income if she were lucky. The afternoon was cold and the wind was blustery. It was slowly growing dark and her old tomcat Wilbur hadn't come up for his evening meal. She walked out into the yard looking for him. There was a faint cry on the wind. She heard him without realizing what it was until the pitch escalated. It was Wilbur. 
and he was squalling. She turned and ran toward the sound at the back of the house, calling him at the top of her lungs. He squealed again. She ran faster, passed, pausing just a minute to catch her breath before she forced her body back into speed. She approached the beginning of a plowed field. She saw a flash of orange with a big reddish-brown form gaining on it. Instinctively, she picked up a fallen limb from the pecan tree and hipped it. Wilbur, she yelled. The old cat veered quickly for an animal of his years and moved toward her. As the animal behind it came closer, she realized that it was a coyote. She heard neighbors talk about them eating cats and killing dogs. She got a firmer hold on the limb. He wasn't eating Wilbur. She moved toward the animal, no thought of her danger she could be in, and slammed the limb down at its head. He stopped abruptly and let out a cry. Then he looked at her, crouched, and cried, You get out of my yard. You're not hurting my cat, she yelled, swinging the limb again. This time it connected with his head, hindquarters, and he let out a yowl. She was too angry to feel fear. She went toward him again, yelling as she flung the limb. He started backing up, growling, but retreating. Get! she yelled. He shook himself, gave her a last indulgent look, and trotted back off into the field. She leaned on the limb. Her ankle was throbbing. She ran right over a bush, chasing the coyote. She hadn't fallen, but she tripped unfortunately hard. She groaned as she went, bent to wrap her fingers around it. Wilbur! she called. The old cat came chopping up, looking as if he hadn't a care in the world. He rubbed up against her leg, twirling around it affectionately. She could hear him purring in the stillness of the late night. Laughing. You horror! She muttered, Look what you made me do. He purred louder. She started to turn and fell heavily to the ground, holding her anchor with the cat now in her lap and rubbing against her ferociously. She couldn't get up. This was fine way to end the day, she stopped miserably. She'd probably be out here all night unless she could drag herself to the front porch. Well, at least the coyote was gone. Grace. She frowned. That deep voice sounded only familiar. It sounded like Darren. But surely he hadn't heard her. I'm here, she called, came around the house, still dressed in his work clothes. What the hell happened? A coyote was chasing Wilbur. I ran off. I ran him off with a stick, but I turned my ankle in the process, she said with a small up. I heard you yelling from the front porch. Thought you were being attacked, he murmured. Bending air all carry him. She froze, her eyes wide, her body rigid as he bent. She jerked back and Clutching her sweater around her chest, he swore, virtually standing brother upright. What the hell was the matter with you? He demanded. Tears stung her eyes. She hated the way she was with men. He didn't mean to hurt her. He was trying to help, but she couldn't bear man's touch her on her skin. How could she explain that to him? I don't like being touched, she whispered, not looking at him. She was too embarrassed. It had been a long day, full of frustration, and he wasn't in a good mood. He almost stormed off and let her set letter to it. Then he remembered the nightmare she had at the, his house. She remembered the shapeless clothing she wore, her lack of makeup, her uneasiness with men. He'd been in law enforcement long enough to recognize those signs. It hit him like a brick. You should have seen it sooner. He knelt down in front of her. His eyes even went, Grace, he said, I won't hurt you. I promise I won't. But you can't walk, and you can't stay here all night. She still had a stranglehold on her sweater, but his voice was calm and steady. He didn't look angry anymore. He didn't even look threatened. She ground her teeth together. It isn't personal. She could go, of course it isn't. Come on. He held out his arm, and she took it, pulling herself to her feet. She assumed that he would lead her some support on her way to the porch, but he suddenly bent and swung her up in his arms, carrying her toward the porch. She made an odd, frightening little sound in her throat and stiffened. He stopped looking down on her. You don't like being carried, him. It frightens you. She swallowed hard, her eyes full of pain. He didn't know. She couldn't tell him. She drew on a long breath, then another. He wasn't going to hurt her. He was a kind man. She forced herself to relax. Her cold hands eased up around his neck as he shivered away. 
so sorry, he just didn't really wonder what in the world could have happened to her. What had made her so jumpy and uneasy with men? An attack of some sort? A rape? He didn't know her well enough to ask questions. He wished he didn't. Taking on a guy already with a stick, he murmured as he carried her back to the house. Now I've heard everything. He was trying to hurt Wilbur, she explained. He's my I see. He's just a helpless old cat, she said. No need to explain, I used to have a cat myself. What happened to it? He didn't like the memory. He didn't like me. I had to give it away. I was transferred to another city, and the apartment didn't allow cats. That's sad. There was a little girl next door who loved cats. I gave it to her. She wanted to know about him, but about his past, but she seemed that he was very much like her. He didn't talk about himself. She was noticing other things. He smelled of nicely masculine aftershave. He smelled of soap, too. He was a fatitious man. His shirts were always starched and pressed, his boots highly polished, his skin was all of tan, and his eyes were dark and mysterious. He had high cheekbones and a sensual mouth. Not a barrister. She hadn't thought of a mouth being sensual before. She was having some odd rage sensations because of the way he was holding her so that one of her breasts was almost flattened against his broad chest. Her heartbeat accelerated and her breath came unusually steady past her lips felt those reactions in her with an odd sense of pride she was afraid of men but she was vulnerable with him he carried her into the house put her down in an easy chair you have an ace bandage she gave him a wide-eyed look and what would i be doing with an ace bandage she asked recently good question he had to call me we would manage with some gauze and the teeth of tape i suppose nobody normal uses that on cut she put it out we have band-aids. He purchased them. We could use an old pair of pantyhose. I don't wear. Gentlemen, please have problems discussing women's under things. At <laughs> first, she took it seriously, and then she saw the twinkle in his dark eyes, and she started laughing. The action made her whole face glow, emphasizing the softness of her gray eyes and the beauty of her perfect skin and pretty mouth. He found himself staring down at her helplessly. Her hair was up in a high ponytail. He wanted to take it down and see if it felt as sooky as it looked. Well, you're going to have to come home with me, he said. I'm sure Miss Turner can find something to bind your ankle with. I've only just come back home, she pointed out, and Wilbur has to be fed. You should all feed Wilbur. I suppose I could leave him inside, man. I just brought a litter box. <laughs> he, lifted, he lifted her in mid-sentence attention to the old tomcat, who came right in when he opened the front door and led him to the kitchen. He helped Grace into his car, leaning over her to fasten her seatbelt. He noticed a breeze. He changed as he came close, and his gaze suddenly dropped to meet hers in the glare of the top light. It was like lightning striking. His dark eyes narrowed and fell to her full mouth, lingering there until he heard a faint gasp come out of her throat. He had to force himself to stand up. He closed the door and moved around the car, reciting silent multiplication tables to himself as he got in beside her and started the car. It really had been a long shy spell. If the scrampy woman was arousing him, he told himself. He carried her into the house, pausing to ring the doorbell and wait for Miss Turner to answer it. He looked down in Grace's face and felt his arms involuntarily drawing her closer. She shivered once and her hands stole up around his neck as she met the open curiosity of his gaze. His chest rose and fell heavily. His jaw taunted. looked at her mouth and felt an insane fever to take it under his and devour it. Grace didn't understand much about men, but even her innocence, she felt the heat and sensuality of that look and her body responded to it helplessly. 
Lane would fire a little girl. He whispered gruffly. Tension in his deep velvety voice rappled through her like liquid fire. Her hands tightened behind his neck. She actually lifted toward him in a few explosive seconds before the sound of the front door opened, split them up quickly apart. What in the world? Miss Turner exclaimed when she saw Grace being carried. She tripped while she was chasing a coyote with a stick. Garrett murmured, brushing past her with Grace. I need a nose bandage. I'll go get one. Keep them for the men, she murmured, retreating as she headed for the living room. Somebody's always spraining something, chasing a coyote. He was trying to eat my cat, Grace called. You throw him right back up. Garrett turned as he put her quickly down on the sofa. Your cat looks like five miles of rough road, and he stinks. He does not, she exclaimed. Well, you can take my word for it that nothing saying would try to eat him. He retorted. He put his hands in his pockets, stared down at her with confusion. He wondered what she... She was wearing baggy jeans and that same pink sweatshirt. He wondered what she looked like in black lace and silk. He blinked. Hard. Where'd that odd curiosity come from? Miss Turner was black, back in a flash with the bandage she handed in Garen. Are you planning to repair her and take her home, or is she staying? Garen knelt on her feet, opening the elastic bandage. She looked up at Grace with a fever of hunger. He didn't understand it, but he couldn't fight it either. She's staying, he murmured, lifted her foot onto his side. For a few days at least. But my job. Oh, I'll phone Judy at the floors for you, Grace. Miss Turner said to Lane. You can't work if you can't walk. Just a couple of days off your foot should do the trick. Rest, ice packs, compression, and elevation. R-I-C-E. Yes, ma'am. We'll take good care of you. She didn't even have the will to resist. She wanted to be with him. It was going to end a tragedy. She knew it. But she couldn't help herself. Okay, she said. He smiled to himself. Fevers were best allowed to burn themselves out, he thought, and refused to think any deeper than that. He went to work the next day, leaving Grace propped up in bed and plenty of reading material with Miss Turner for her company. The ice packs had reduced the swelling, and the rest was helping as well. I feel much better, Grace told the old woman. Couple more days, and you'll be walking, was her blast. She smiled. I think you're getting to the boss, she had on her chuckle. Only a week ago, he'd have had culture and admit you to the hospital. <laughs> he just feels sorry for me, Grace said, not getting her hopes up. That niece of Mrs. Tolbert's brought food to the house, she said. She told me that she'd worried I was some sort of competition until she saw me. She was very insulting. You should tell the boss. No, Grace returned. I couldn't. She must have something going with him. An invitation to a party, Miss Turner replied. You may find her interesting, but she isn't the proper sort of companion for a man in his position. Law enforcement types tend to be extra conservative. She, she's been gossip about all over town, and not in a good way. The woman's a nepophiniac. She doesn't even stop at married men. What do you mean? They say she made a play for Leo Hart and... Uh... And Janie walked right up to her in Andy Webb's office and told her she'd tear and father her if she ever made a move on her husband again. Andy still laughing about it. What did she say? There was nothing she could say. Janie was furious, and she didn't lower her voice any, either. I wouldn't say the woman was embarrassed exactly, but Cowan Bounder was walking past the office when Janie said it. And he gave the woman a look that meant trouble. She got out of Janie's way. Real fast. Grace couldn't resist a smile. Redheaded. Janie was a tiger when she lost her temper. Garen and Marquise had gone together to the outskirts of the city to interview, among many others, a witness who said he saw a shadowy figure take the child out of her house late one night. Garen had Blackberry 
like Marquis came in handy here. Couldn't swear to it, the witness Sheldon told him. He lived next door to the child who had been abducted. But he looked sort of like a drifter I saw near the computer shop in town. I write software, he added in a lazy tone. The man was tall, thin, completely bald on top, middle-aged. He looked dirty, and he limped. Could you say the child? Aaron asked. He shrugged. He was carrying something. It could have been a bundle of clothes for all I know. I was up late and went to the kitchen for water, and there he was. It wasn't until the next morning that I heard the child was missing. I did tell the... I did call the police. Yes, we have the... Yes, we have the patrolman's report. Marquis replied. Gave a man a long, steady serenity, noting his glove. Why do you wear gloves in the house? Yes. I had an accident when I was a child. The man replied, his eyes growing cold. I have scars on them. People stare. Sorry, Marquis said. Can you die like that? Guaranteed, noting how very white the wrists were above the gloves. Yes. They're kid leather. Very thin. Well, thanks, Garrett said, putting away his blackberry. Any time, he replied, rising from his chair. He was a tall, timid sort of man who seemed to like the best computers money could buy. He had, too, a base computer and an expensive laptop. He said he had a girlfriend, but he lived alone in a small apartment complex just inside the San Antonio city limits. How long have you lived here, Mark, he said. About a year, he said he smiled pleasantly. I don't stay one place much. I get restless, and my job is portable. All I really need is a post office. Well, thanks again. If you think of anything else, give us a call. Marquis added, handing him a business card. The man looked at him curiously. Sure, sure, I will. He smiled only. How's the case coming? Any leads? We're hoping you might have given us one, Marquis said. I can see how you'll need help finding this guy. You cops aren't required to have much education, are you? I was invited to join Menza. Menza, the organization for geniuses. Karen gave the man an odd look. Where are you? Hey, I might only have two years of college, but the Fed here, Marquis, he's got a degree. The man stared at Garen without blinking. Was disconcerting. Fed. Sure, Marquis said. He's FBI. I I didn't know they called the bureau in on this case. The man stammered. We requested his help. Marquis said he didn't say why. The man looked less confident. Well, of course, the FBI would have experts on serial murder, he murmured almost to himself. And you need one for this case, Cameron. Why do you think this guy's a serial killing? The man laughed only no reason. It's just there was a very similar case in the papers last year sometime. There was a child, too. It was in Texas somewhere. Two of them would make it serial, wouldn't it? We're not prepared to call it that just yet. The man was all smiles as he walked him up. Anything more I can do, I'll be here. Just ask. Marquis and Garen left, walking slowly back to the bureau car that Garen had driven here in. The man watched them leave, waving again as they got into the car and pulled away. I don't like him, Marquis said suddenly. Why not? Marquis shifted, adjusting his email. I don't know. There's something about him. Something not right. And Karen gave him a curious look. How long have you worked homicide? Four years. Why? Karen smiled himself. You carry a gun with you when you empty your trash can? Marquis eyes one. How the hell did you know that? You keep one on, one by the bed, one in the bathroom, one in the kitchen, and you wear a spare and an ankle holster. Who's been, who's been investigating here? The young man demanded. I'm right, you know I am. Marquis made a rough sound on sir. They are catching me off guard, he said firmly. You need to work in another area for a while. You come in. Too many homicides will burn you out. 
You know this how? I was in the FBI's hostage rescue team and then SWAT, he said. I wanted something to keep my mind busy, but I saw too many dead people. I woke up one night with a victim sitting in the chair beside my bed, asking why I didn't shoot before the kidnapper did. The victim had been a hostage, he shrugged. You can work homicides too long. Marquis laughed only. I guess so. We don't ask for a transfer until we solve this case, Karen added. I think you're right about the murders being related. He's good. He's very good. He put the body in a field near the road where it would be found easily. He wanted her found. If your crime scene investigators were right, she'd been tortured for some time. That means the killer has to have a place where he feels comfortable keeping a child bound without fear of discovery. It also means he's cocky. He thinks he's smarter than we are. Did you ever do profiling, Karen said. We've had professionals who do that, but I've read the crime scene report and talked to the parents. I've worked serial killers before. This guy's a sadistic killer. He likes our children. He gets off on their pain. Organized or disorganized? Organized, definitely. Karen replied, stopping out of her life. He took time to dress the child and even put her shoes and socks back on. He posed her at the site where she was found. He tied a red ribbon around her neck. In fact, he had grimly. She was likely strangled with the ribbon. You think there's a connection to the Palvino case? Yes, and I also, and also to the Del Rio case two years ago. That would make three similar child murders in three years, Marquis said. You know, that makes it a serial murder. We're going to drive over to Del Rio right now. He added, making a turn. If we can't get anybody to talk to us on the phone or via email, we'll just drop in for coffee. I'll bet you they drink instant Marquis murder. I'll bet you're right. In fact, they did. There was only one placement on duty when they arrived. He was responsible for every faucet of policing. He apologized for not answering the calls. We've had a clown call in the office day and night to report ghostly apparitions, he muttered. The guy's got two screws loose, and every time we ignore him, he threatens us with his family's lawyers. They're rich. His family. It was better when we had the voodoo guy trying to put spells on us by sticking pins in G.I. Joe Dull. Garen smiled. We want to know what you've got on the child killing year before last. Now that's a funny thing, he said. No, I don't mean the killing was funny. There was this guy said he was a reporter for one of the East Texas dailies. He asked to see the file on the murder. I figured it wouldn't hurt. To have a little publicity, might turn up a suspect. I had a call, so I left the guy with a file and told him I'd be right back. I'd work an accident. Wait for the state police because there were injuries. By the time I got back to the office, the reporter was gone. Phone started ringing. The file was on the desk, so I, I just stuck it back in the cabinet and answered the phone. He said, call me. Next day, I wanted to take another look at the case, so I pulled out the file. It had ten sheets of blank paper in it. No evidence, no crime scene photos, no nothing. Damn, my keys crumbled. I know it was naive to leave the guy alone with file, but I figured I could track him down. I phoned every daily in East Texas. He didn't work for any newspaper. Apparently not. What was in the file, Marquis asked. Crime scene photos, trace evidence, watches of the child's underwear. Nothing else. Not really. Did you have negatives of the photos? No, but I figured the photographer would, so I phoned him. He shook his head. He had a fire in his studio, and all the negatives were gone. Garen and Marquis looked at each other curiously. With some coincidence, there's two mishaps. You sure there was no other evidence? Marquis persisted. The police officer pushed his Well, yes, there was this long piece of 
Wide silk ribbon he used to strangle her. Ribbon, Darren said, what color? Why, it was red, Elvis replied. Blood red. End of chapter six.